Do you love coffee and Monero as much as we do? Consider making gratuitous.org your daily cup. Pay with Monero for premium fresh beans, and if you like what you taste, send a digital cash tip directly to the Guatemalan farmers that made it possible. Proceeds help us grow this channel, Gratuitous, and Monero. This week on Monero Talk is sponsored by CakeWallet. Store, send, receive, and exchange your Monero and Bitcoin safely on iOS and Android too. CakeWallet is open source, and you always control your own keys. And by Sweetwater Digital Asset Consulting. Connecting new money with old money since 2018. CakeWallet and Sweetwater Digital are trusted and verified by the Monero community. Monero Talk is also made possible from contributions by viewers and listeners like you. This week on Monero Talk. Douglas Tuman interviews Peter Todd, a Bitcoin Core developer and applied cryptographic consultant. Peter has been publicly discussing Monero as an interesting project from its earliest days. In fact, Doug reveals how he first learned of Monero from a Peter Todd podcast. In this episode, Doug asks Peter a series of questions comparing Bitcoin's various security risks to Monero's. Most notably, they discuss Bitcoin's most glaring security risk, a fixed coin supply that lacks a Monero-like tail emission to ensure miners will have an incentive to mine in perpetuity. Monero Talk starts now. All right, Peter, thanks for coming on, man. Hey, thank you. Apologize for the delay once again. That no worries. New York City traffic, still a nine to five sucker over here. Uh, how about yourself? You're, you're not a nine to five sucker, right? You've, you've been out of that game for a while, right? I mean, even when I was a nine to five sucker, I didn't follow nine to five. <laughs> <laughs> I'd kind of have to show up at 12, <laughs> leave at eight. <laughs> what was your, your pre-crypto job? I did analog electronics design for a gravity gradiometer startup. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, go ahead. Basically, they they were building a new type of gravity sensor. And the purpose of that is well, you know, the the marketing explanation they love to give is uh, say you're trying to go find diamonds, right? Diamonds tend to form in ancient volcanoes. Ancient volcanoes are a solid mass of rock surrounded by a bunch of, you know, not so solid volcanic um, tuff getting thrown out. And if you can measure the gradient of the gravitational field between that, you know, really dense core and that not dense surrounding, you can go find diamonds, which is really useful when, you know, thousands of years have piled up gravel on top, like most of Canada. Now, of course, that was a marketing explanation. Mostly it would be for like oil and gas, but, you know, it's like, that's that's why it's useful. Just uh, if you measure gravity, you can measure the density of things. And And you were building the actual hardware? Well, so I was doing analog electronics design for that. Um, so like the hardware itself is this, you know, superconducting like thing in a doer, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there's like all this sort of analog electronics you need to do to get the signals out. Right. And then I, you know, my job was then to design that stuff plus to figure out issues like noise, like the, you know, the raw numbers are basically we'd, you know, the core of it, like we're measuring a countable number of electrons moving in and out. So having really, really good control on uh, issues like noise and whether, you know, stray currents get injected and stuff is incredibly important. 
and that job. And, you know, that was like what I wound up doing. So, you know, practice like a lot of sitting around with pen and paper, writing out equations, you know, working on actual electronics, getting the soldering iron out. It's a fun job, but the uh, problem with it is analog electronics is kind of a dead field because it's, you know, it's very mature. I mean, not much has changed in the past couple of decades. So mm. I was never going to make uh, never going to make a name for myself or, you know, make any improvements to that field. So I jumped ship and went off to crypto where it is new. And you discovered crypto just it was kind of a side hobby. I guess you were just always intellectually curious. And well, like in high school, I got into it through the Freenet project, which was sort of decentralized data publishing and you know, being sort of an economically minded kid, I uh, figured, well, be good if you somehow pay for this. And that's how I learned about e-money and the ideas there. And I even wound up on a mailing list talking to Adam Back and Hal Finney about uh, basically trying to invent Bitcoin. And uh, like many people, I completely failed at that. But <laughs> And you were, like a, you were like a teenager at that time, right? No? Yeah, about uh, 16. Yeah. That's amazing, man. Yeah, that's 15, amazing. 16. Um, Crypto's yeah, not I, that I really, hard. I really admire you. <laughs> Just, just uh, let's just get that off the bat here. I really admire you. I've been following you for a very long time from when I first got into Bitcoin. I think I had told you this when I first met you in person. You were, uh, you know, uh, a skeptic that I always listened to, maybe to a fault, actually. I remember there was a Reddit <laughs> post you had put out. Uh, I think it was like when, kind of when I was first getting, I was like really becoming a, a Bitcoin maximalist at the time. And yeah. I think you had uh, sound the alarm bells about um, a oh about fifty one percent attack. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So I, I, you know, I didn't, you know, I was one of those guys that uh, was running around like a chicken without a head at that point. Like, oh my god, what am I going to do with my my two Bitcoin? They're going go to go. Well, the- you notice how I didn't sell all my Bitcoin. I sold half my Bitcoin. <laughs> oh, I didn't even remember that part. Did you say you had sold? Yes. I guess that's what really yes. scared the, the lights. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. it's just like, you know, I mean, with investments, you got to have a plan, right? Because yeah. investing on emotions is a terrible idea. Yep. So yep. one of the th- events I decided, all right, I should go and lock in, say, you know, lock in gains basically is if someone gets 51% on mining, I'll go sell half and, you know, lock in that upside. And I did. And it was a great decision for the next three years. After that, maybe not such a great decision, but it took a long time for that peak to finally get uh, reached again. You know, I would have sold at like 700 or so. And then yeah. remember how the price dropped for quite a while for finally, you know, rising again uh, more recently. So that I, I sold like nearly at the peak of that. So how, how, how has your opinion of Bitcoin changed over the year? So like from, from that point until now, do you still see Bitcoin the same way or has your perspective and kind of opinion and take on Bitcoin evolved or changed in any way? I think what's, I mean, I think what's changed most about Bitcoin is just how mainstream it is. I mean, I, I don't know if you saw it earlier, but, um, you know, Teletubbies, as an example, is apparently doing a Bitcoin episode. Like Teletubbies, you know, the Tubbies will go to the moon or something and like get Bitcoin. I mean, who the hell knows what they're going to do? But like for it to end up in Teletubbies, it's just crazy. Absolutely crazy. Yeah, never thought we'd see the day, right? Yeah, yeah. You know? And I I mean, I guess it's sort of it's not like I didn't expect that when I got in. I mean, obviously it you know it had the potential of doing this, but it's just it's it's remarkable when you actually see it happening, you know, having like beat the odds basically. And you know, if you'd asked me point blank, like what's the chance of that happening, you know, 
10 years ago, I probably would have said, well, you know, 10%, like 5%. Yet it, it works out. And so not only, you know, did I listen to you regarding Bitcoin, uh, also Monero, you, you were also one of the earliest, I think, people talking about Monero publicly on podcasts and things like that. Yeah. That's where I kind of first learned about it. How has your opinion of Monero evolved? I don't think it's really changed. I mean, I, I think it's changed. Like I'd say it's because it hasn't died. You know, that obviously is a signal. You know, the longer things survive, the more likely they are to survive. I mean, it's, I forgot what the heck's the name of the principle, but, you know, it's a, it's a common principle. Well, it's a good one. And so from that perspective, certainly, I mean, not dying, you know, not going away, still being a, a relevant thing, you know, that's, that's an achievement in and of itself. But I don't think Monero has, you know, had this sort of a mainstream adoption like Bitcoin has. Like it hasn't, it, you know, it's just, it just doesn't come close to that kind of mind share. But then again, it doesn't really have to, you know? Yeah, I, I, you, exactly. You know, it could kind of be an island of its own. Um, you know, I've heard you recently talking about memes. Uh, I was, you know, today I was doing some research to listen to some of your, your recent interviews and, uh, you know, how Bitcoin itself is a meme. And I, I totally agree with yeah. you on this. You know, money is a meme, right? Uh, yes, the U.S. dollar is a meme. The U.S. dollar, religion's a meme. Christianity yeah. is a meme. So how do you see the meme of Monero versus the meme of Bitcoin? Is it essentially the same message or are there, are the messages, are the memes different? between the Monero meme and the Bitcoin meme? So I would say, I don't think Monero really relies on memes as much as Bitcoin does. Okay. You know, Monero has a, like, like I own a little bit of Monero and there's a very clear reason why I do it, which is I get some coins with the privacy guarantee different than Bitcoin. You know, that's, yes, that's partially a meme because obviously, you know, someone could just fork Monero tomorrow in a hundred different ways. So, how to choose between those ones and the fork is, you know, a meme. But other than that, like other than that selection of, well, which Monero do you choose? I thought there was really that much memeing involved. It's, you know, it has a technical use case. And that is enough to cause me to buy a small amount of coins. Now, does that support a, you know, particularly large market cap? Not really, but then again, the Monero market cap isn't that big. And so then what do you see as being the Bitcoin meme that it, that it's digital gold or um, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I, th I mean, I think digital gold is a good part of it. Um, I think part of it is also is, you know, Bitcoin has a competence behind it that you don't see in very many other cryptocurrencies. I mean, it's, you know, it's frankly hard to think of an example where, technical decisions really seem to be made well, um, you know, to the extent that Bitcoin does. And a lot, of, a lot of times it means not making a decision, you know, not making a change. And Bitcoin, I think, does this really well. And it's proven that the, for, you know, the, the society behind Bitcoin, you know, the community behind Bitcoin, they're able to keep that kind of conservatism and keep things running. You know, you look at the discussion around Taproot as an example right now. And it's, it's sort of like, it's sort of laborious. It's kind of boring to look at. There's a ton of different arguments around it. But for the point of view of what Bitcoin should be, 
which is kind of boring digital gold. It's a really good thing to see. You know, you know seeing a bunch of geeks arguing about minutia is actually a really positive thing. If what you care about is having reliable digital gold that'll maintain its value, you know, it's it tells you that's not that likely that someone's going to screw up Taproot. Right. There, there's trust in in the security yeah. of Bitcoin. In, in, in you, a, say the, the decision making, you know, in the decision making. Yeah. And, and it's also it's not to say that it's like those geeks are the ones who make the decision, but that is part of the process. You know, people go hash something out, then they go propose it to others and so on. And yes, that's a very slow process, but it's a process by which many people have a chance to you know, spot problems. And it's not that likely for something bad to happen. It's not as likely for something good to happen either, because it, you know, there's a good chance like Taproot won't get deployed, you know, and it'll get bogged down in infighting. But that's a better outcome than Taproot getting deployed and screwing up. And unlike, say, Segwit, Taproot's just not important enough to, you know, really take big risks and really push things. So this slow process is fine. You know, and I think it's very encouraging for Bitcoin. Now, so do you see Bitcoin and Monero as competing for, you know, the digital gold meme or space or digital cash? I kind of see those as the same. I don't know if you do. Digital cash, digital gold. Yeah, I, I don't really see them competing. And I think the reason is that, you know, Monero fundamentally takes a much more risky technical approach than Bitcoin because it is privacy. You know, unfortunately, privacy on the base layer is technically dangerous in comparison to not having it, because when something goes wrong, you know, there's a whole class of problems which are much harder to detect. You know, and, like any idiot can go and validate the Bitcoin blockchain and check that the numbers add up. You know, it's just, it's not hard. Doing that for Monero is, you know, fundamentally a lot harder. And that just means there's less eyes on it, less people watching for these problems. And then, of course, you get Zcash, where it's just a nightmare, and who knows, you know, what the like what the Zcash, uh, you know, total supply is. But you know, this this is a trade-off. I mean, Blockstream's done this too with their Liquid uh, sidechain. You know, Liquid is fundamentally more cryptographically risky than Bitcoin because it hides amounts. Mm. Now, is that a risk they can get away with? Oh, sure. I think in I think in that use case, it's a totally fine risk to take. You know, particularly since so many of the stuff they're talking about is assets that are issued and they have tons of ways to deal with problems. But, it, you know, to do that on Bitcoin itself would be a big risk. Yeah, I mean, I've been playing with, you'll, you'll probably completely disagree with me, maybe on some of these points, but <laughs> I, I kind of think in some ways, Monero may be uh, less risk adverse and more secure than Bitcoin. Like, for example... The tail emission, right? So, oh yeah, I, I struggle with the fact that Bitcoiners oh, are, are, on that particular on that particular thing. I think Monero got it right. Yeah, I would have I would have gone even farther. I would have actually rather than made it a fixed tail emission, I would have made it an inflationary one to keep a target inflation rate. Because if you don't do that, well, then your real inflation rate may keep dropping, and you're still not. You know, you still don't have a guarantee you have enough security. But certainly compared to Bitcoin, you know, Monero got that right. End of story. And so doesn't that doesn't that play into Bitcoin security, right? It's, it's an unknown for its future, whether or not. Uh, it is, but the timeframes of that are so long. I mean, 
like between now and the point where Bitcoin has really serious problems with that, you know, what's for instance the chance of like the world burning in flames due to nuclear war? I mean, it's not that low. <laughs> like <laughs> there's there's many things to go worry about on those time frames and Bitcoin has a reasonable chance of either fixing something or just getting replaced by something else. You know, it's just, it's not relevant in the short term. But in the long term, yeah, no, I, I would not be surprised if yeah. that poses a problem for Bitcoin. Well, we get we get pretty close. I think we're going to see it sooner than later, though, right? I mean, I know like it's hundreds of years until we hit that 21 mil, but we get we get a lot closer to that 21 mil sooner than we all think, right? I mean... Yeah, I think last time I looked at it, it was like four decades to get to like 0.1% inflation or something. Yeah, so do you think we maybe start to feel the the effects of, of you know, the lack of mining incentive sooner than later and start to start to realize and struggle with whether or not, you know, the, the fee market is going to I suspect, be able to replace the, the mining reward? I suspect that assuming Bitcoin's price you know, if not keeps going up, at least stays high. I suspect that the amount of inflation necessary to keep it working properly is going to be fairly low. You know, I, I suspect 0.1 will work just fine as an example. You know, I, I don't think it's going to take a lot of inflation to get enough security because if you're talking about something with, you know, trillion dollar market cap and you divide, you know, that say 0.1 by you know the number of blocks in the year, that's a still a lot of money per block. And as Bitcoin becomes more valuable, it looks like fee fee income has been fairly significant. You know, it's still not the dominating force, but it doesn't need to be. You know, right now Bitcoin probably has more security than it needs. Unfortunately, it's always hard to say what that what the, that number should be. You know, like like we don't know how big the attackers of Bitcoin are. Who would actually do a 51% attack? We just don't know. But certainly, the inflate—you know—certainly, like say, one percent inflation rate is affordable. Chances are, 0.1 will probably go work, and that's still a long ways out. But you know, it remains to be seen, and it is a risk. So, how, how does so you assess less risk to that than say? the risk of there being, uh, you know, inflation, undetectable inflation in Monero. I, and, and yeah, yeah I see that risk going down over time as, as more people look at the code and, you know, um, will that, well, risk I, I, I think the, the undetectable inflation um, risk in Monero, that's likely to go down over time just as crypto gets better. And, you know, there's more people understand it. But it, you know, it'll always be higher. And also, part of it, like part of that risk, is not just, you know, not just people screwing up, but also intentional sabotage. And I think that's one of the problems with it. So, you know, and that that means that risk will never go to zero because you know, no matter how well we understand crypto, it will fundamentally always be harder to audit than a system where the amount are out in the open. You know, that's that's just unfortunately the reality. You know, and Bitcoin gets so much of that privacy advantage just by having people use Lightning. Yeah, they've they've decided uh, to move to the second layer, which I think ultimately Monero is going to have to do as well, right? Yep. I mean, for Monero to scale. Yeah. But you know, I mean, the way I look at it, and, and tell me if you disagree. You know, I the analogy I've given is like you know the Tesla, right? So 
uh, in this day and age, you'll, you'll go, you'll get in your car, and you're fine with driving with no hands, not touching the steering wheel, and you're basically trusting in in this black box that you you really can't see into. That's using a hot, very advanced technology to to drive around versus you know riding on a bicycle where you would instantly know whether or not there's you know uh, a gear that's not functioning correctly. Yeah, uh, I, but obviously I, there's a lot of advantages. I, 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 I think Tesla's. I think Teslas with their self-driving and auto updates are fundamentally dangerous and they should be banned. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I'd say it's not because I'd say self-driving per se is fundamentally too dangerous. It's the combination of auto updates and self-driving. And w the reason why is effectively terrorism. You know, someone can download an update to Teslas that at the same time will crash them all into the nearest wall. Like, okay. That fundamentally can happen. All right. Well, well, bad analogy then, right? So, I mean, Monero's, yeah. Monero's open source. Tesla isn't. You can look at the code. But my point being like- I mean, even, we, even, if, even if Tesla was open source, mm -hmm. the very fact that there are people with the keys to go do this attack is insane and cannot be allowed. You know, like, right. I'm sorry, but cars that have auto updating needs to be banned. End of story. Like, it is just, it is just far too dangerous. And I'd also say- Cars that use closed source software that's not deterministically built for safety relevant functions, they also need to be banned. You know, like this this is a gigantic risk for society and you know it just cannot cannot happen. And we are fixing these problems in computing, not entirely, because we have things like hardware backdoors. Um, you know, like look at Intel's utter farce with uh, hiding a Minix uh, OS operating system in every CPU, you know, that, I mean, people should go to jail for that. It's fraud. Like not telling people what the risks were is fraud, but we're improving on that. And it's, you know, it's, it's just something that kind of needs to be recognized and fixed. Wow. I never thought the Tesla analogy would go down that road. <laughs> well, um, but maybe the, you need more forget Tesla. But the point I'm trying to make, you know, so with with improved technology, there's always more. Well, all right, here in, in the engineering, right? Here, so here's a better analogy. Please. Difference between driving a motorcycle and driving a bicycle. Okay. You know, like yes, it's not quite the the trusting and you know same sense as Tesla, but if anything breaks on a motorcycle, there's a good chance you're fucked. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, but. They, they are they are dangerous things, you know. Is it acceptable it's danger? Sure, I'd ride one. I got no qualms with that. But you know, it it is a much bigger danger, and you're putting a lot more trust in the machine. I mean, frankly, even a bicycle. I mean, I've had a bicycle have a I don't know the technical term for you know like the front you know part of the frame crack on me. And at the time, I was going about sixty you know k an hour down a big hill. Like, had I not realized, oh shoot, that there's you know something's wrong here, and I stopped, uh, that could have killed me easy you know right and, and we're, we're not all just riding on bicycles to get from point a to b yeah. we're, we're in cars we're in planes. Yeah. We're, we're trusting in engineering that could yeah. be catastrophic yes but we do because there's great advantage and so with monero i well, mean so here's you, the thing think the, i just want do you think that the fungibility and privacy that you get with that risk do you think that's that's a great advantage and perhaps here's worth a, the risk so, Here's why I'd say that these analogies are a bit tricky because in a thing like Monero, it's a collective failure. 
And you know, this is a problem with design flaws. They're collective failures. When, you know, my bicycle, the frame cracks because the weld didn't, you know, quite hold up after 20 years. That's only going to kill me. But when crypto breaks, you know, at the core of a coin, that can destroy the whole market cap in one swoop. You know, that is a much bigger risk because the harm is so much higher. Now, does this mean that Monero is a bad thing? No, because it, there's Monero and there's Bitcoin and plenty of other coins. You know, it's it's a contained failure. If Monero disappears tomorrow, I'm sorry, but so what? You know, this is not an existential problem for uh, cryptocurrencies. Right. It'd be a lot of bad PR, but, you know, it's because people aren't using it as digital gold, it's a much more acceptable trade-off to make. Yeah, I mean, interesting take on it, though, too, could be that, that it would be potentially less catastrophic in Monero, right? Because nobody would really know what's happening, right? So people, the yeah, people yeah. that are benefiting from it could just slowly continue to benefit from it until it's slowly revealed. As uh, uh, well, in Bitcoin, I mean, it, it would when, when it be get, more catastrophic. But when it gets revealed, that's likely to be a disaster where everyone does the same thing and sells. Now, you, you don't think Bitcoin has that same... I know it's a different type of risk, but it's certainly possible for Bitcoin to have... Um, you know, similar issue, I guess, more detectable, obviously, but you don't see that as potentially being catastrophic as well. I mean, I think it's telling that we have had this problem happen in Bitcoin. It was noticed immediately. You know, the the first inflation bug that was actually exploited was noticed, even though hardly anyone was using Bitcoin. And somehow someone was running enough analysis to go notice the block it created with too many Bitcoin. You know, and that's a such smaller Bitcoin than you know than it is now. These days, alarm bells would get set off all, all over the place because tons of people have recreated the you know the essentially the inflation checking um, code that's been implemented many times over in many different ways for many different purposes. You know, it's just it's hard for that to go undetected for long, and so long as it's detected, because there isn't chain level privacy, it's not that hard to just roll back and figure out solutions. How about like the underlying elliptic curve cryptography that we're relying on? I mean, there's yeah, if that failed, we're screwed. <laughs> right, so, so doesn't that kind of so it's like, but it's we're, but, we're, we're uh, flying uh, in a plane anyway, so uh, it's like you want to fly I, in. I, a I think I think that's a much less risk. Like, What's that? I'd say I think that's much less of a risk because that less math less. has had far more eyes on it, and it's also a lot older. Okay, you know, it's it's not a zero risk by any means, but. I think it's less. And also, in the context of society, there's so much stuff that depends on ECC being secure. Like Bitcoin would be the least of your problems. So I, I want to continue. I hope you don't mind. I want to continue to go down this thread, this, uh, this idea of security, because I do think that's, uh, you know, the biggest difference between uh, Bitcoin and Monero. You know, Bitcoin maximalist, and I'm not saying you're one, whether you are or not. Well, I'm definitely a maximalist, but not sorry, Bitcoin maximalist. You're would you say you're a a what maximalist? A, P, a Peter Todd maximalist. Well, I I'm a maximalist in the sense that I accept that due to the economics, you're going to get a very small number of coins. Right, like that's that's just obvious from economics. Definitely. It happens that Bitcoin is you know, at the top due to, you know, due to essentially the, you know, history of uh, how the memes worked out, but mm -hmm. it's not, it's not that Bitcoin itself is 
you know, that fundamentally unique. Like, what, you know, what exists in Bitcoin could be recreated elsewhere if it really had to. It wouldn't be easy, but it's, you know, it's, it's possible, right? Well, that's interesting. Before, so do you think that if, if Bitcoin fails, crypto fails? I think there's a very good chance of it because once something that big has failed, there's a lot of incentive to just 51% attack the next thing. So like, because of that, not because of yeah. a loss of faith in the in the idea. Yeah. It's I mean, you know, that that problem would also potentially lead to a loss of faith. But point is starting from scratch to recreate Bitcoin infrastructure is really tough because it can be attacked when it's you know when it's young and small. Mm-hmm. Now that's not the same thing to say that something can't replace Bitcoin. And that's why I'd call myself a maximalist, not Bitcoin maximalist. But I'll say also be realistic in saying the chance of that happening is pretty low. Okay. You know, what do you think would have to happen like for that to happen? What, what, what would be the scenario wherein something replaces? Obviously, I think you think that Bitcoin can replace gold, right? Uh, or, or in fiat, U.S. dollar. Uh, so, so we know. Certainly most of what gold is for. Yeah. Yeah, net, network yeah. effects of money yeah. can be overcome, and yeah. I think we're already starting to see with yeah. Bitcoin. So, what do you think would have to happen for that to happen to Bitcoin? What well, you, you know, it's it's one of those interesting questions because it's kind of you know it's kind of like asking a gold bug, what would it take to replace gold? Right, and it's hard to predict the future. You know, what will be the thing that makes Bitcoin obsolete? I mean, well, what would be the thing that makes gold obsolete? Right. I guess it's plausible if you asked me, you know, ten years ago, I might say, well, yeah, digital currency. Right. You know, that that kind of has obvious advantages, but asking again, it's hard to come up with a technological improvement that would do it. And fun- fungibility doesn't and, and improve fungibility and censorship resistance doesn't pop into your head as being things like that. I, you know, I think why it doesn't is that Bitcoin seems to be mostly good enough. I think, you know, there, there are examples where I could imagine a thing like Monero becoming more popular than Bitcoin due to specific laws getting passed. But they'd have to be like, you know, they have to sort of thread the needle, if you will, through a certain set of circumstances to really make that happen. You know, like just hypothetically, let's suppose that governments around the world pass laws that say, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to say that we can track stolen coins and your coins will get, you know, confiscated if they can be traced back. But somehow we're not going to apply any of those laws to things with privacy built in. You know, that's, that doesn't feel like a very likely scenario. It's possible. And in that particular set of circumstances, maybe something like Monero takes over. But, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't seem that likely. You know, it's, there's too many sort of like, there's, mm. there's, too, like, there's too many preconditions there that don't really match how you'd expect governments to work. Well, it's not that governments wouldn't. It's just that Monero would be more unstoppable by governments. Well, I, I guess what I'm saying is like in a scenario where that is a risk, that's actually sort of an existential one. It's a very strange thing to say, all right, governments will do this, but not this. Right. So you'd expect the relative risk between those two coins to not have that big dichotomy. Rather, you'd expect them to say, oh, yeah, by the way, we also hate Monero and we're going to ban that, too. And now they're playing on a level playing field as in, well, how well can they resist government bans? Which I think in both cases is actually pretty good. 
Okay. Yeah. So I, I would think, do you, you don't think, Mon- and this, I want to continue to go through and I guess we're kind of doing it anyways. Um, so like in terms of security, we spoke about potential hidden inflation bugs and, you know, obviously Bitcoin is better than Monero in that regard. Uh, in terms of mining security, Monero has a tail emission. So I, I think that gives it a little bit of a benefit. And, and I do too. And then, uh, you know, we're seeing news today of the Marathon, and this is a little bit kind of like what you were alluding to, the Marathon Digital Holdings uh, Group. I don't know if you saw that, that they're the mining pool, the North American mining pool. Oh, yeah, I've heard of those ones, yeah. That they basically are going to be, uh, you know, they're only going to, they're going to be fully compliant and they're going to basically only mine, uh, you know, transactions that uh you know uh, See, don't fall on the on the fact my my take on that is that's much more about complying with the letter not the meaning of regulations you know oh like ofac's list of coins it it doesn't do you that much good because it's so easy to just go mix things and other things and get off that list you know like it, it's logistically very hard for them to make that list effective without also accidentally banning Bitcoin. Now they can go the other way, say, you know, well, now we're going to whitelist stuff and that's a threat, but it's a threat that applies equally well to Monero, you know, and I think any realistic long-term scenario. Well, I think we're starting to see it really happen though, right? With this, with this uh, mining group, I mean, they're, they're saying that they're going to comply. But I think you're missing my point. It's yeah. To talk about Bitcoin versus Monero, in that scenario, you got to talk about the relative risk. And I say the relative risk there is, yes, Bitcoin might have a hypothetical disadvantage, but that kind of mining groups then going to say, well, oh yeah, Monero, we just can't mine it at all. You know, we can't be involved in any way. Right. But do we need that mining group to mine it at all? And when we have a distributed mining network that's secretly mining it? Well, Bitcoin can do that too. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's... I don't think there's a strong advantage. Plus, you know, Bitcoin transactions are increasingly done with Lightning, so you know that's that that do, that that becomes a a lot less relevant. Now, if say that group goes and attacks Bitcoin, that could be quite a big problem. But there's no indication of that happening yet. And again, if that is a problem, well, now Monero is at risk too. But this idea where in Bitcoin. Uh, if miners wanted to censor certain transactions from certain wallets, they effectively could. And if they're being mandated by governments to do it, they may do it. Whereas in Monero, a government may can't, couldn't even possibly mandate them to do that because they wouldn't be capable of doing it because they can't see what transactions are coming from where and going to. But I th- again, I think that's counterbalanced by the problem that that gives governments reasons to go and, you know, well, for instance, like it gives governments reasons to do things like say, all right, you can mine Monero, but you can't mine transactions at all. Right. And there's nothing Monero can do, but that problem, like there's no technological mechanism in a cryptocurrency that can force miners to mine transactions. Yeah. I mean, I guess what I see as being the difference is, you know, these rules are coming down from OFAC and FAFTA or whatever. And, but you know, and and apparently mining farms are are saying they're going to comply with these rules. 
but you know it wasn't uh, legislation that's passed by a government. Um, whereas if you wanted, OFAC is legislation um, forcing people to follow it. Just to be clear. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, but if it wasn't, uh, you know, if you wanted to to ban because the 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 analogy or the you know analogous thing to do to Monero would be to straight up ban it. Uh, but, well, but remember, the, I'd say the analogous thing is say, well, since you know, since you can't prove that an address isn't on this list, you can go mine Monero, but you can't mine transactions. Okay, I guess the point I'm getting at, I feel like if they were going to attack Monero, they would literally have to to ban it, and then at that point, it becomes much more of a. Um, an action that a government's but, but again, I, I don't think that, may, I don't think that makes sense. Constitutional rights, but you know, here in the United States, things like that. But again, I don't think that makes sense. The, the, the analogy is to say, all right, you can mine Monero, but you can't mine transactions. That's actually more harmful to Monero than the alternative with Bitcoin, where you get more, where you actually get more room to go play with the play with the laws. I would say it's a big difference, but I, I think it goes to say that, Having different coins with different abilities is useful for the ecosystem as a whole, but it does not mean that one coin is automatically better positioned than the other in general. You know, what, what it really does is it says to governments, here's this whole suite of things. We have all these different strategies to go respond to you, and you're just going to look like an idiot because, you know, you try to go ban one thing and we'll do something slightly differently and so on and so forth. But that's a different statement than saying, oh, yes, you know, coins following this policy are automatically better. You know, what, what helps us is actually having multiple different ones to give tons of different options and, you know, in different ways to different government actions. And the same thing is like with Lightning. The fact that Lightning does transactions without them ever appearing on the chain is really, really useful against government bans because it just takes that visibility away. But can you just do Lightning? No. It but is there a risk there with, you know, you know, KYC or AML laws being applied to lightning nodes? I don't think so. I mean, I think there's a risk, but not an existential risk because people can use lightning and, you know, on their own. I mean, no, like nothing forces you to ask government permission before you run a lightning node. You know, from a technological point of view, you can go just to hit, you know, you can go ahead and do that. Now, we have companies, for instance, like BitPay, which actually require you to do AML KYC before any Bitcoin payment, regardless of how it happens. And that's something that they're trying to claim is being forced on them, which doesn't appear to be true, but whatever. But, you know, the risk there between Lightning and a regular Bitcoin payment or Monero payment isn't actually that different. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, how about... I'm just continuing down this road here of of security uh, on on Bitcoin versus Monero. How about ASIC resistance? So, uh, so is Monero potentially more robust in terms of its decentralization, given that it's ASIC resistant? Well, if it was ASIC proof, it would be more robust, but that's a problem. It's not. It's been for the last uh, year or so. so well, you think it has. At least you feel like it has. You, you think it has. It certainly hasn't. You know, yeah, what do you think about that? I guess that, that's the first question. Do you think uh, Do you think Monero effectively is ASIC-proof right now? 
The problem is there's no such thing as something as ASIC proof because you can always build dedicated hardware that does a job better. You know, I've never seen any algorithm that doesn't have that property. I mean, I, I forgot off the top of my head what's, you know, what proof of work algorithms Monero are using these days, but random X. Random what? Random X. That's a, a random memory access one, right? Yeah. It's basically the uh, designed by Howard Chu and, and others, but the goal of making the, the CPU uh, the ASIC of Monero. Yeah. Or, well, you mean really a memory bandwidth being the ASIC Monero? Because it's not going to make a CPU be the ASIC Monero. Well, that's what it's effectively done. I, I can guarantee, like, it, if the limiting resource is CPU, then you can make a CPU that targets a subset of what the actual limiting resource is far more efficiently. You know, modern CPUs use an enormous amount of silicon in being generic enough to do instruction scheduling for anything you throw at them. You know, right there, I can make it more efficient by specializing. And if it's actually uh, bandwidth limited, like so many of these um, algorithms, I can make it more effective by customizing my system to go use the bandwidth in exactly the way um, you know it's accessed. You know, for starters, just by, for instance, putting the computation closer to the actual silicon. You know, that like the, the problem with ASIC resistance is the margins on mining are fairly small. You know, you'd be lucky to get a 10% profit margin. So if I can make something twice as efficient, well, now I have an unbeatable ASIC. And it's not hard to get something twice as efficient if making an ASIC is quite difficult. And the more ASIC resistant you make your algorithm, the harder it is to make the first ASIC, which then means the first ASIC that comes on the market has an unbeatable advantage. Uh, yeah, no, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I encourage you to have you have you looked into RandomX? I I don't think that particular one, but I am okay. very skeptical because I've looked into so many of these things and they've all failed. You know, I mean, I was I was in I was in hardware design. Like, no, I know. You, I encourage you know Howard you know? Choo, Howard choose the real deal. You should. Uh, He's not in hardware design. You should you should look into it. Yeah, I, I know him. He's not a hardware designer. Last I checked. Okay, well he, he's he's done quite. It's see, I'm obviously not technical enough to 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 bait you on this at all. But um, I would love for you, you know, to talk to him about it, and uh, that'd be that'd be a great conversation to to witness. Um, how about dynamic block size? Stupid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, the, the problem is like... I mean, good in that it avoids, uh, you know, any block size debate, right? Yeah, but it doesn't. I mean, you're, you, if, if Monero actually got used to an extent where this stuff was an issue, you'd wind up with a block size debate somehow or another. I mean, Ethereum effectively has a block size debate right now. You know, Ethereum fees are incredibly high and people are trying to get miners to increase block size, you know, yet more. But... Like it, it runs into fundamental questions about who gets what and you know who gets an advantage from bigger block size and who doesn't. Like there, there is no magical way to stop this problem. But what don't you like about the fact that it's dynamic? Well, I think because it is very likely to create more failure modes where people exploit the dynamicism. In particular, it lets people create scenarios where the block size does go up. 
Like, if I'm not mistaken, and it's been a while since I looked at Monero's dynamic block size, but there isn't a fundamental upper limit to it. Well, there's there's penalties, right? You you can get that's that's actually part of the reason why tail emission exists. But with those penalties, then it means you don't have, you know, like probably it doesn't achieve the goal of letting it scale upwards to you know what would make the big blockers happy. Yet it also makes things worse for at the other end of it, where you still have this mechanism by which you know you can end up with bigger blocks. Like like there is no good answer to this. I think it's far simpler to just have a fixed limit and call it a day. Okay. You know, and part of that's, I mean, layer two is the only thing that makes sense. Like, you, you just have to assume that most transactions will happen on some kind of layer two, you know? Do you think perhaps Monero is better suited for layer two than, than Bitcoin because of the fact that it has the tail emission? Uh, you know, this idea if all transactions in Bitcoin essentially move to the second layer. Oh, yeah. No, I, I think that's a lot less risky. But, you know, that's, again, that's something that doesn't matter that much for a while. But certainly in the long term, you know, Monero is better positioned for that. So I, I see you as uh, kind of the ultimate skeptic, and I, I mean that in the best way possible. Um you, I think you're you're great at, at looking at things and 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 finding uh, what can potentially be wrong with anything. So, what what is your biggest criticism of, of Bitcoin? And then I'll ask you the same of Monero. Probably, you know, four things with like fundamental long term problems. Probably the lack of inflation. You know, that okay. like in the in the long run, I think that is one of the things that's both has a decent chance of killing off Bitcoin and also is fixable, you know, relatively easily. Like in terms of like, you know, or I should say with a time machine, if you went back to the creation of Bitcoin, right, that is that is a design flaw that could have been done right. You know, there's there's nothing stopping that from getting done properly in a new coin. I mean, it's. A simple technical choice, and Bitcoin got that wrong. Now, could you fix that now? Eh, you know, good luck on that. Have fun. But it's it's just one of those things which is a very clear. This should have been done differently. So then, how how do you see that playing out? If it's um, you know, something that can't be resolved, it's, you know, it's it's really hard to know. I mean. If Bitcoin died off in say you know fifty years due to it, yeah, I wouldn't be that surprised. Like it's 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 honestly hard to know how the politics of that will play out. Now it may be that fees are enough to make it all work, and then things will be fine. You know, I'd, I'd say there's a good chance of that being true, but it's it is a risk. And part of what I th I think mitigates that risk is layer two and layer one for a lot of applications fundamentally compete. You know, if I'm sending you 10 Bitcoin and I don't really care that it gets to you immediately, there is no real advantage to layer one or layer two other than, you know, privacy stuff. Now, there's obviously going to be downsides because layer two is fundamentally going to be harder than just sending a Bitcoin transaction. So to the extent that fees are... You know, to the extent that fees are low because too many layer two transactions, well, that automatically means that it's more advantageous in some scenarios to just send it on chain. 
And that, again, pushes up layer one fees. So will that be enough? I, you know, I, it's tough to answer that question. It would be much better to have yet another, you know, layer, like yet another source of fees, uh, or sorry, yet another source of income. But it might be. And uh, same for Monero, your biggest criticism, I guess it would be the potential uh, hidden inflation. Well, see, I, I can't really criticize Monero for that because that's not a technical flaw. That's a design choice. You know, that is something that they chose to do, which is a fundamental trade-off, and there's no easy way around it. In terms of something where they could have chose differently, I'm kind of inclined to say the non, you know, sorry, the, the ASIC hard proof of work. But that's not an, see, the issue with that is that's not an easy thing to say. This would obviously be better for the short term because picking a, you know, an ASIC function in a world where there's other ASICs is tricky. And the reason is um, actually kind of technical, which is something called dark silicon. So, you know, these days we can put more transistors on a chip than we can actually power at once before the chip burns up. And that means you can actually create ASICs that do two simultaneous things at once. And once you do that, the incentives get a little weird because, you know, effectively you can have a lot more capacity for one, for one hash function than there's necessary market demand for. And also that capacity can go change because you know, the technicality is running dark silicon and stuff. So as much as I want to say Monero should have done an ASIC card proof of work, in the, you know, in the bigger context with things like Bitcoin existing, it's not clear how that would have actually played out. You know, in the short term, as much as I'll criticize it, the ASIC card proof of work might still be the right choice in the short term, particularly if you can, you know, be in a position where you can go change it often, which introduces its own set of problems. I mean, that's a huge centralization problem. You know, people can go and, for instance, um, advocate for change to a proof of work that they actually secretly have built ASICs for, you know, as an example. But, you know, but because of how this works, it may be a best of bad of bad choices situation. Okay. We got we got to get you talking to Howard. I know I know you said you you know him anyway, but I'd love to see you guys talk about. I mean, I, I don't know him personally, but you know, I've, I've looked at his background and stuff. I mean, he okay. wrote. Um, I'm not gonna get this right. L L L D V or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. I've actually used that. Um, my timestamps calendars uh, use it. And he collaborated with obviously others on it, so you know, yeah, it wasn't just him. But um, L L D V is a big project. <laughs> No, I mean uh, random X. Um, oh yeah, random X too. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you? Uh, what are you? Are you concerned of of the social uh, implications of crypto? So right, I mean things are really taking off right now. Uh, obviously, this is all. This I mean, if if I was a cow, I'd be very concerned. You know, I might get eaten. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, if I was the cow species, I think it's great. So there's gonna be a ton of me. What do you What do you think the world's gonna look like in terms of you know those that that have a good amount of crypto and those that don't? Uh, ha do you think about those type of things? Uh, I think I think it's a risk, but I think it's mitigated by the fact that people like to go buy Lambos. <laughs> 
you know, pe people do not hold their crypto as much as they claim to. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a lot of spending going on, and people just don't get as rich as they could. So that you know that gives opportunities for other people to go benefit. Plus, mm -hmm. the amount that Bitcoin can grow isn't that much. Like, remember, I bought my very first Bitcoin at like twenty cents. I should have bought more, but you know that that's the that's the number I got. I uh, sent you know. So it was like $10 bill or something or $20 bill in the mail, literally to a guy who then sent me some Bitcoin. And that's 20 to the current price. That is a lot more orders of magnitude increase than I think Bitcoin has. Like I, I, I don't see Bitcoin growing more than another 100x. You know, the, the world economy is just not big enough for that. Now, remember, I'm talking about real value. I'm not talking about numeric value. In terms of numeric value, the sky's the limit. I mean, you know, they can inflate the U.S. dollar down to arbitrarily, you know, low value, right? The, you know, if if one Bitcoin was worth a uh, a trillion trillion U.S. dollars, I mean, the only thing that would be the only thing that would surprise me about that is that they got the computer systems to register that many zeros, you know. But in terms of real value. The world economy is finite in size, and Bitcoin is already a pretty big chunk of it. I mean, if, if I remember correctly, like gold is something like another 10x more than Bitcoin. Yeah, I, know, think, how, I think that's where we're at right now. Yeah, yeah. like how, how much more can it really grow and not be the economy, which just doesn't make any economic sense? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'd, I'd, I'd put the number at likely another 100x, and that's just not that big. And uh, what do you think about the fact system that, you know, that's going to be quite a bit of power in the hands of, uh, you know, the, the, the crypto early adopters? Uh, what, what well, again, I, uh, I expect to see that, you know, and, and I know, of course, this has happened, but so many of them go sell. Like, it's just human nature. People don't lock. People don't wait forever for infinite gains. And as it is, like the world's already in a place where a relatively small number of people own a very, very large percentage of the wealth. And, you know, it's, I'm not going to say that it doesn't cause problems, but to say that Bitcoin will be a change over that status quo, I think is a bit silly. How about the fact that this, this wealth is on a transparent ledger? I know you say most people, you know, well, it's not that transparent. <laughs> it's pretty transparent. No. F f figuring out who actually owns that wealth has proven to be quite tricky. Uh, that, like, there's a lot of people publishing stats supposedly on you know how how Bitcoin wealth is distributed, and it's pretty easy to see a lot of them are just wrong. You know, and I, I again, I, I just don't see that as being well. And also say in comparison to the status quo, Bitcoin is still much less transparent. You know, we have a very good idea of who the billionaires in the world are. We have a much less good idea of who the Bitcoin billionaires in the world are. What do you think, um, you know, imagining a, a, a Bitcoin world versus a Monero world, right? So which world would you rather live in? Uh, you know, a world that ultimately is built on a transparent ledger or one that's you know, uh, putting aside the the fact that 
there's more potentially more risk with Monero. But just philosophically, you know, this world where everybody well, if there was no difference in technical risk, certainly Monero. But unfortunately there is. So And how how would you how would you see that playing out though? Um, you know, so imagine, you know, being in this world where we're you know, basically all zap money around with, with you wouldn't know, be that different money. from the you know normal world. Cash still exists. You know, I, I we we don't need governments to be able to go see into every single financial transaction. That's just nuts. The the traditional tax enforcement system of we audit people occasionally and then we go force them to go give up details. Then that makes so much more sense, and it works. You know, we have literally hundreds of years of history proving that works. Yeah, I just, we I, also have is hundreds of years of history proving that giving authoritarians a ton of information about people's lives is really dangerous. Couldn't agree with you more. I, I just had Richard Stallman on, uh, and I was shocked that his opinion was that you know he he's a, he he obviously is a big proponent of cash, uh, but he's fearful of something like Monero because it would allow people to move around cash on the internet uh, where they're not just moving small amounts, but potentially millions of dollars. And he's fearful of- He obviously doesn't hang around with rich people enough. <laughs> rich people can already move around money undetected through his entirely legal ways. Was His concern was tax evasion and then how you know that would deteriorate. Ah, uh, yes, tax evasion, something the rich certainly can never do. <laughs> like, come on. You know, I mean, I, I've, I've met him personally. He's, he's kind of funny because for someone who you might think is like super cypherpunk and stuff, he actually kind of sounds like just a typical, reasonable sounding, you know, middle-aged voter. He's got totally boring opinions. He's got this stuff about free software, but actually makes a lot of sense when you listen to him. Like, you know, he's not an extremist. That's the funny thing about it. And yeah, I, I, was I, I, I think he's got a real cognitive blind spot because he's not an extremist. You know, <laughs> things that he doesn't focus on, I think he makes really big mistakes. And I, I think that's a good example of it. Yeah, and, I, was, I was shocked by that. Yeah. You know, it's just, I'd say he needs to understand more about how the world actually works. And the reality of the world as it is, is that crypto is leveling the playing field, it's not giving people new abilities. It's giving people who aren't rich new abilities. Exactly. Exactly. That's the point I, I tried to make with him. Yeah. You just very eloquently made that point. Last question. Do you do you think there's going to be, you know, an, uh, a real attack on crypto from, from the state, from the U.S. government, from other governments well, in the world? Are they going to mount an attack or, or is it going to continue – to just... I, th I, I think we can say without a doubt that governments around the world have mounted an attack, but not all. You know, as an example, India is trying to go get crypto entirely banned. That's obviously an attack. Now, does India matter? Not that much. Now, will the U.S. do that? Well, you know, look at the U.S.'s record on gun control. In spite of Democratic politicians, you know, just... I don't only want to say focus, like I'd say obsessing about this issue. States continue to loosen gun control more and more and more to the point where it looks like Biden will illegally do executive action on this. And that'll probably result in them losing even even more power. You know, it's it, 
I think the nature of many countries like the U.S. is they just have too much common sense and desire for freedom to really make a strong effort at attacking Bitcoin. On the other hand, I think it's also clear to say that these attacks are happening, and it's unclear where that you know how that will play out. I mean, much in the same way as just tax on personal freedom in general are continuing. You know, there are a lot of governments out there who are looking at COVID as an excuse to go and forcibly track the personal location of every single person constantly. You know, I, I know people in Singapore and every time they go into a shop, they have to go check into a government database. Yeah, pe- people are happily opting, opting into it. That's I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say happily, but it's, it's, in a, it's in a place where it's easy to force people to. Like, it, it, I think it's interesting, like talking to people I know who have nothing to do with crypto, how many of them are very uncomfortable about things like vaccine passports they're not really in a mindset to do much about it. I think partly because they think other people support them more than they actually do. What do you mean they think other people? Uh... Well, like part of what cancel culture has done is created a mechanism to strongly attack people for perceived you know, beliefs of the wrong thing. And I yeah. think vaccine passports fall into this. So uh-huh. even though so many people are uncomfortable about it, it's very hard for any of them to speak out. I mean, like just the other day, I was talking about a friend of mine um, who, uh, you know, does teaching and they'll probably be uh, forced to get vaccinated for this, even though they, you know, the numbers for them personally don't make sense. Um, you know, they're young. It's very little risk for them. And we know the epidemiology, et cetera, et cetera. But the important part, takeaway of that is she's dubious about it, but she doesn't even want to go and raise the issue because she'll probably be ostracized for it. Even though many of her colleagues believe the same thing, but there's a small minority of found ways to, you know, take power and ostracize people for beliefs. As in, if you, if you disagree with that, previously it would just be a disagreement. Now you're going to get fired. I know, very scary to see. Do you think that those similar tactics could be used against crypto and in particular something like oh, Monero? You know, Monero, absolutely. Yeah. Monero is used for terrorism, Monero. Yeah. I, I read- uh, uh, the nice thing, though, is that the, this is used for terrorism play seems to actually be kind of played out. Mm-hmm. I, I think the population sort of got a bit tired of, oh, you know, such and such. We got to do this for terrorism is pretty, you know, it it became a joke. People realized this was all bullshit. Yeah, I ran, I ran for U.S. Congress here in, in New York in the 4th Congressional yeah. District. And uh, months after I, I lost, I did pretty well. Uh, but six months after... Um, Somebody, I, I didn't really put effort into trying to figure out who it was, sent a letter to every single person's home that, of my donors, uh, basically a threat letter saying, uh, you know, never donate to this guy again. He supports Monero, which is used by terror. <laughs> and it was with a picture of ISIS holding. Yeah, machines. yeah. But I mean, the, the reaction for most of those people, because they, they, they reached out to yeah. me was, oh, wow, this is crazy. And, I'll go vote for you next time. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, yeah. you must be onto something with yeah. this if it's, if it's rattling yeah. pages. Yeah, it's like, it, though, though I think what's interesting about that is how, even though that's where the population kind of went, you still could go get government funding for anti terrorism efforts that were total nonsense. You know, like that goes and shows you what a big disconnect there is between what the population actually wants and what governments are able to get away with, which is really scary with things like COVID, where I think people are 
you know, frankly, they're afraid enough, they're terrified enough that a big chunk are willing to genuinely do really restrictive stuff. Now that'll go fall by the wayside as, you know, it becomes more and more obvious. None of those things really worked. And, but, you know, it'll take time for that. Much the same way as that right after 9-11, I'm sure there was much more genuine support for authoritarian measures than there is now. But it takes time to kind of reset to normal. Hmm. And the bureaucracies you create, they have a habit of not going away. And they lobby, you know, sort of on their own realm. The ratchet effect. Yeah. Well, thanks again, man. Um, thanks for coming on. Hope to have yeah. you in, in the, on again in the future. Hope to maybe see you uh, in New York sometime if you ever get back to normal and you ever come to any New York. If, New York, if New York ever lets me in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Thank you. Do you, do you want to tell people where they can find you? I'm sure. Uh, PeterTaught.org and, uh, you know, Peter K. Todd on uh, Twitter, although I tend not to post that much there. Uh, I'm also on Mastodon, uh, mastodon.petertaught.org. So. Very cool. Yep. Any projects that you're working on that you want to mention? That you uh, Still my open timestamp stuff and my uh, never uh, rather delayed uh, proof marshal stuff. That's making some progress, so. What's that? The, I know I've heard of the open timestamp thing. What's the? Yeah, uh, Proof Marshal is the one to effectively let you create data structures that are unique. You know, timestamping proves something exists in the past. Proof Marshal is meant to prove it's the only thing that existed. Mm. And that's basically you know the core of double spend prevention. So if you can create a data structure that can't be double spent, you can do all kinds of interesting auditing stuff. Very interesting. Well, do you want to go go into that a little bit more? Well, like a simple use case is uh, doing tokens. Um, you know, uh, uh, like um, Tether and Bitfinex, um, you know, is a great example. And they've actually funded some of Proof Marshall where they would like you to be able to go trade US or, you know, USDT tokens around. They want that trading to be secure. And to do that, you need to prevent the double spend of those tokens. Well, how do you go do that? The proof marshal approach is ultimately to tie the double spend prevention in something like Bitcoin and then show that various levels of data structures are unique. And long story short is in this system, if I were to give you a proof marshal using you know, USDT token, I would prove to you that this part of this whole data structure representing you know, every token ever made, the part that I have that's relevant to the token I own, has now been put in a state where you now own it. So kind of like the Bitcoin model, except what you verify is just the stuff related to your money, not everyone else's. And that potentially lets you scale. Mm. Now, there's some technical trade-offs there. You know, it's this does things better than Lightning in some ways, worse than Lightning in others, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it has better privacy in Bitcoin in some ways. Um, but... Essentially, you know, gives it another good option for things that need tokens, as well as, you know, stuff that needs auditing, as an example. You know, you might want to say, I have, uh, you know, I suppose Bitcoin Core uses, right, for software releases. When you install Bitcoin Core, you want to know that the software you're installing is the same software everyone else has looked at. And by creating a unique data structure representing all the Bitcoin Core releases, you can verify that you've got the same copy of that as everyone else does because of essentially double spend prevention. And therefore, if 
anyone's backdoor the software, everyone had you know had a chance to notice, right? I mean, certificate transparency works the same way. Like the the website we're talking on right now, you know, um, that the ultimately the certificate for it, you know, the signature saying this actually comes from who it should be, that's recorded in certificate transparency log. Those are another thing where they should be unique data structures. So everyone's looking at the same data. Again, proof marshal could, you know, leverage Bitcoin to make sure that we're all looking at the same data. Why, why, uh, why this problem? What, 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 why have you headed down this path? Oh, really? Because there isn't good options to, um, to write software to go do this stuff. Um, there, if there's not libraries that make it easy to do. And of course, as I found out the hard way, it's kind of hard to write those libraries. There's a lot of tricky AI, you know, like API problems around it. But ideally, I'd like it to be as simple to create a cryptographic data structure that's unique as it is to use a database. You know, you can kind of say it uh, sort of as blockchain for the masses. <laughs> but mm. without the silly Ethereum model where like everything is a one, you know, giant blockchain that doesn't scale. Okay. Very cool. I will ask you one more question because I know you were what you were art historian. You you studied art history, right? No, I, I studied fine art. I, I actually art. I, I was an artist. I uh, I, I made uh, electronic okay. art. So yeah, that's what, so have you got into the NFTs at all? Are you participating yeah. in that as an artist? I mean, I I, I consult for a company um, that's looking into getting into that stuff, and I think uh, maybe a. Uh, I think Verisart has actually been involved in some issuances, but um, Verisart's much more about, I think, a more sane side of it, which is, you know, figuring out provenance, figuring out relationships with artists. I mean, so much of the NFT stuff is just being, we have this, you know, digital token that doesn't actually mean anything, and right. we're going to hype that up. I mean, it's no wonder it's being a flash in the pan. Yeah, do you, do you see any, where do you see the value in that? Like you said, just the provenance thing with... Well, so... As an accounting mechanism, the idea of a non-fungible token is really useful. I mean, Proof Marshal would be a great platform to build those on. Um, but the problem with that is to make that actually valuable, you need you know certain things to kind of fall into place. And from an artist's perspective, I think a big part of that's finding the right software and sort of UI experience and so on to make this a continued relationship with the buyer. You know, and a really simple example is I bought a print recently. I mean, it's hanging up on my wall in front of me. And I bought it the traditional way, well, somewhat traditional, go to websites and say, oh, I want that print. And I guess it's a numbered edition or some other nonsense. I really don't care. But amazingly, when I got it, I like looked on the back and the artist's name wasn't on it. So like think, think forward five years. You know, I have a guest over. They say, oh, I like that. I want that. I want one of those too. How would I even remember who the artist was? <laughs> like some of these marketing things are just so simple, yet companies still get it wrong. Mm. You know, like it it would it, just putting a label with the name of the artist on the back of the paint, you know, of the print would be a big improvement over the status quo. You know, and like an NFT thing could potentially be useful there to create a way to say manage your collection and you know make it easy to show, hey, you know, this is an actual numbered edition, not you know some copy. I mean. Copies are a big problem in the arts world, but it's it's you know it just doesn't match the hype, right? Like the hype right now is these NFT tokens where 
it's not clear why anyone would even collect them. You know, it's not clear what they really mean. And it looks like a lot of the eye-dropping sales are, you know, those huge amounts were actually inside deals. Hmm. Well, I, I think that they're great for Monero, right? Because uh, finally people are, are learning what the word fungible means. So yeah, yeah. There's that. Yeah. yeah. All right, Peter. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, hope, hopefully I'll see you around. All right. Talk later. Thank you, sir. Ciao. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have an Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Monero Talk podcast. Go to monerotalk.live slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we are always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week.